0: cold tablets and washed it down with a bottle of Kahlua. And I put on a long white gown to (sighs) die. Cause I'm a drama queen and you'll feel terrible when you find me, you know? Hadn't really thought that one all the way through. And, uh, And fortunately or unfortunately, I'm a drunk dialer. And I called my mother and my mother's a therapist. And my mother put me in a lockdown psych ward. There's nothing more embarrassing than being in the nut house put there by your mom. And, uh, and they sent me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I remember was a bunch of toothless old guys, uh, probably about the age that I am now. And uh, they said they had lost their family due to drinking and they had lost their home due to drinking and they had lost their job due to drinking. And I was 21 years old. I hadn't lost anything yet. I'm not an alcoholic, but I know drugs are the problem. And I got out of the psych ward with what the book calls self-knowledge. I know I can't do drugs anymore because drugs are the problem. In the, uh, in the psych ward, they gave me medication. I do love medication. <laughs> I love medication that says don't drink with this medication because you know it's gonna be good if it's got a warning label pretty much everything in life, right? If it says don't do it, I'm in. I mean, I'm the girl who can't even get into the lift, right? And like it says wet paint and I go, is it? Is it really wet? I need to touch it and check. So, you know, I get out of that psych ward and I've got medication and I'm not doing drugs anymore and I met a man. That's a lot of my story, by the way. I have a tattoo on my arm, it's hard to see on Zoom, but it says seemed like a good idea at the time I don't know if any of you can relate to that in and out of my alcohol, my alcoholism, drinking or not drinking, right? And so I have a brilliant idea and I go with it. And I met a man. Um, you have a marrying problem as well. I've been married four times. And so I met a man and we got married and he didn't do drugs. And that's okay. I'm not doing drugs anymore. We threw away my bong together. Oh, and we're going to live happily ever after. And I took that man hostage for nine years <laughs> and he had no clue what he was getting himself into, man. I took him for the ride of his life over nine years, and you know, I can tell you that I'm always trying to fix my insides with my outsides, right? So if I do this, it'll, it'll, it'll fix everything. And so we moved to a town called Simi Valley, California. It's very conservative, and drug addicts don't live in Simi Valley, California, so I'm going to be fine, you know. And we moved. Uh, we bought a house on a cul-de-sac. Because uh, drug addicts don't live in houses on cul-de-sacs. I drove a, a station wagon. You guys call it an estate car, right? And because uh, drug addicts don't drive station wagons, and uh, and I'm gonna fix my. You know, I started listening to country and western music. Drug addicts don't listen to country and western music, and I'm gonna be that perfect girl, that girl that I want to be. But unfortunately, I don't know what's wrong with me. And so I continue doing what I'm doing and I continue drinking and continue taking my pills. And and I had my beautiful son. And I can tell you that, you know, I wasn't attached to my son when he was born. You know, I was so selfish and self-centered. You know, I had seen every movie where the woman would have this baby and they put the baby on their chest and they were just this instant love and attachment. And all I remember feeling was fear. How am I gonna take care of this baby? How am I gonna, I can't even take care of me. And and then one day that man was done. He was done with that relationship and he left. And uh, I met a wonderful Al-Anon man who took care of me and my son for a year and a half so we didn't die. And I'm super grateful to that man. And he just wanted to fix me. He was gonna fix me and save me. And even though taxi drivers would bring me home passed out and dumped me on the front porch. He continued for a year and a half. And I'm so grateful to him. But then one night, you know, I went out to the bar with my girlfriends and I met him. Oh, him. He was the man of my dreams. He drank like I did. He had a crystal meth problem, so he was sicker than me. And I knew I was in love. He had a He's wearing his work uniform and it had a patch with his name on it. And I could remember his name throughout my whole blackout. And it was on. So we went back to the al guy's house. We picked up my kid, we picked up my stuff and we were on, we were gone. So we got married. Uh, we got married in our apartment because he was on house arrest, right? Nothing goes better with a rented tuxedo than an ankle bracelet. <laughs> Oh, we are in love (laughs) and it's gonna be be amazing. And you know, at this point, my parents have disowned me in an email because they're techno savvy. And they said, we're not gonna watch you die and we're not gonna watch you take our grandson with you. And my response to that is, I don't need you anyways. You know, and I had lost my third job that year. I had been hospitalized four times for my drinking and that guy went to jail, and I was left alone in that little apartment with that boy, doing my best to be a good mother and knowing that I wasn't. And uh, and there was a series of events, you know, where I uh, I ended up calling a treatment center. And I gotta tell you, I didn't go to a treatment center to get sober. If you knew I wanna welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't care what your intentions are. I went to a treatment center because everybody was on my back. There was like a sticker on the door and the chain was coming next because I couldn't pay the rent. My mom wasn't talking to me anymore and I didn't have a job. And I was like, what am I gonna do? And they were taking my son away from me. Like, what am I gonna do? And I went to this, I am the girl who took all her drugs to treatment who knew I, uh, I knew you guys weren't going to let me drink anymore. I had been hospitalized four times for drinking that year. I was pretty sure that was off the table, but the guy who unpacked my uh, bags in the rehab pulled out my pop seal bag with uh, 15 prescriptions in it. He said, Ooh, what's this? And I said, Oh, those are my medications. They're prescribed by a doctor. And he said, you have a lot of doctors. And I said, I have a lot of ailments. And he said, some of them are in Puerto Rico. (laughs) Uh, And he was great because he knew I was just ready to run out the front door of this treatment center. And so he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take them up front. And when you need them, you can come get them. And I thought, Oh, this place is so much better than the psych ward because I prefer my own cocktail really in the psych ward. It's a little too drowsy. And, uh, That night they brought in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and you guys scared me to death. I have no idea how to deal with you. I have no social lubricant, right? You're smiling and you're bathed and happy and you wanna hug me. (sighs) And uh, I went running up to that front office and knocked on the door and the nice guy who unpacked my bags was nowhere to be found. Woman opened the door, she said, what? And I said, I need two Ativan, two Xanax, a Valium, a Vicodin, a Trazodon, a Wellbutrin, and a Prozac. Please, I'm having an anxiety attack. And she said, you can't have that here. I said, no, you don't understand, (laughs) right? Because that's the cry of the alcoholic is you don't understand. And she said, oh, yes, I do. The worst thing that's gonna happen is you're gonna hyperventilate. You're gonna pass out on the floor. You're gonna wake up and you're gonna be fine. Slammed slam the door in my face. And she was absolutely right. I spent my first week in Alcoholics Anonymous watching meetings from behind the sliding glass like nurses window in the treatment center. So I wouldn't hyperventilate and pass out in your meetings because when I hyperventilate and pass out in your meetings it's really just drama and disruptive, right? <laughs> and my second week in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to sit in a chair by the door with my foot touching the outside wall. So when hyperventilate and pass out in your meetings. And that's what I brought to you. You know, I can tell you today, 20 years later that those were panic attacks. I had constant panic attacks all the time when I wasn't medicated, when I wasn't using something and I didn't know how to deal with you. And, uh, you know, I was gonna do some of what you did when I got here. I wasn't gonna do all of what you did when I got here. I mean, don't get me wrong. I live in Los Angeles, like we have these huge meetings You know, we call them dog and pony shows, right? And like, you know, like the beautiful people, 350 people, you know, that you can use AA as a dating service. Odds are good, goods are odd, right? And, right, you can hang out. And I dug meetings. I, you know, I didn't have a social life when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And and I love meetings. I always say meetings had my three favorite things, cookies, coffee, and convicts. I loved meetings, right? And uh, hang out, right? They told me to work the steps. I don't like anything that has the word uh, work in it. It's an action word. I'm not a fan. I'm not gonna work out at the gym. I really don't wanna work at your job and I'm sure not working your steps. They told me to get a sponsor. I got a sponsor and name only because I would talk to her and she'd tell me what to do. Like I'm terrible with authority figures, right? And uh, they told me to take commitments and I would take commitments where I'd get to look cute and be the center of attention. I was your chick chick or your literature chick, you know, in a very short skirt and a very tight top. I was a lot younger then. Look at me. And uh, they told me not to get in a relationship my first year. So I uh, I didn't. I slept my way through this fellowship and two others trying to get recovery by injection, which uh, which didn't work. And I got... <laughs> They told me not to get in a relationship my first year, right? So I didn't, I got my first relationship at a year and a day. Yes, followed the rules. Hmm. I've worked step none. I got no God, I got no sponsor. But we're going to meetings. Oh, it's gonna be amazing. He had been out of jail for eight days and we were in love. My sponsor likes to call it undrunk. I was here, but I wasn't here, you know, and uh, in nine months, that guy was loaded in my house, all the money was gone, and he was walking out my front door, and for me, this causes a problem, because I have alcoholism, what I have at this point is a year and nine months of completely untreated alcoholism, and my alcoholism demands treatment, eventually demands treatment with alcohol and drugs or a spiritual solution is outlined in our book, so it was eight days before my second sober anniversary. That's two years without a drink or a drug if you're counting. And I had a plan. I was standing in my shower crying cause I couldn't stop crying. And I was gonna buy a gun so I could blow my head off on my second AA anniversary. Cause that's the best I got at two years without a drink. You see, when I came to you, I thought if I could stop drinking and using drugs, things were gonna get better, but I have alcoholism. So when I stop without a solution, Things get worse. And luckily, I trained my feet in Alcoholics Anonymous. I hadn't trained my brain here yet. My feet took me out of that shower, took me into a meeting, a meeting where some wonderful women grabbed me, women who cared more about my life than my feelings. And if you're new, I hope someone cares more about your life than your feelings. And these women said, you know. You do some of what we do here. You don't do all of what we do here and you're dying of alcoholism. And on that day, I was desperate and willing. And if you're new, I wish you desperation and willingness because if you're not, you won't do the things we do to stay. I started to do everything you asked me to do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I started to work those steps with a sponsor. I started to show up and set up your chairs and pick up your cigarette butts. I started to be of service. I started to do everything that you asked me in terms of unity, service and recovery, the three sides of that triangle that collapses if one side is missing, I only had one problem. You kept saying, God, I just didn't like that word. You see, I grew up with a punishing God. I grew up in a household where you would bang your knee on the coffee table and my mom would yell from the other room, God punishes. And I would think of all the bad things I did. And I was like, I don't want that guy to know where I live. That's a bad deal for me. Right. And so you kept talking about turning my will and my life over to the care of this, this God. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to do everything else you asked me to do. But like my sponsor likes to say my favorite sentence in the English language is I got this. And if I got this, I'm not turning my will and life over the care of anything. But by doing the simple actions that you asked me to do, my life got better, started to look good. Right. I met a nice man in Alcoholics Anonymous and we got married in a big AA wedding, 238 of our closest friends and family. It was beautiful. We bought a house. I got my son back at three and a half years sober. You know, I was driving a BMW, I had a great job because you taught me how to suit up and show up and it looked really good on the outside. You see, I have a thinking problem. I don't have a drinking problem because if I had a drinking problem, I'd stop drinking. And 20 years later, you and I wouldn't be sitting here in, on Zoom while I have to be wearing a dress. By the way, I'm wearing a dress because my sponsor requires I wear a dress <laughs> on Zoom. But I have a thinking problem. And I had uh, at eight and a half years sober, I started thinking, I mean, what are those, did those people really in AA, are, are they doing all the things they say they're doing? I mean, come on, rigorous honesty? Really? That's a lot of work. It makes it very hard to get your way. So it started really simply with illegally downloading music because I think I'm entitled. And then I thought it was okay to cheat on my taxes. And then I thought it was okay to cheat on my husband with a 24 year old boy who had 18 months sober and no regard to his welfare at all. And I was running around Alcoholics Anonymous doing shady stuff in and out of these rooms. And I'm sponsoring half the San Fernando Valley where I live trying to transmit something I don't have because I don't have a spiritual solution but I'm going to meetings and I'm showing up and I'm talking and I'm doing the whole thing, right? And it looks really good on the outside and I'm dying on the inside. And by the time I'm eight and a half years sober, we have a problem because my first drug of choice is what you think of me. And now I can't tell you. I can't tell you that I don't have what you have. I'm sitting in meetings and I don't have it. You know, we do a prayer for the still suffering alcoholic. That doesn't just mean the newcomer. I can be suffering in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and you won't even know it because I'm not going to tell you. And that's what was happening for me. And that's when the woman who was my current sponsor came into my life. And she said, you're going to drink. And I was like, no, no, no. Don't you know who I think I am? She said, you're the prom queen of the leper colony. Now what? You're popular in AA. Woo-hoo. Head table at the mental hospital. And she opened up that book and showed me where it said that if my motives didn't change, I was sure to drink. And I didn't believe her. And I was 10 years sober and I was standing in a bar in Las Vegas, Nevada, a bar I had been in a million times. And I had acted out in my marriage one more time. And I had a thought, there's that thinking problem. And I was looking at the pretty bottles behind the bar. And I thought, you know, if I weren't an alcoholic, I wouldn't have to live up to this spiritual garbage, which is a really scary thought for an alcoholic like me. You see, my sponsor had told me that everything I do is walking towards a drink or walking away from a drink. Not just in here with you, because I can be a spiritual beacon of light walking with Bill, Bob and Jesus for an hour and a half, you know, sitting next to me in traffic. (sighs) She said, everything I do is walking towards a drink or walking away from a drink. And I knew she was right. I was walking straight for a drink. And then I called her and I said, I'm walking straight for a drink. What do you want me to do? And she said, well, it's a program of principles and you don't have any. (laughs) The first one being honesty and the second one being humility. And I found out when I got honest, humility soon took care of itself. Because when the people in Alcoholics Anonymous found out I had cheated on the nicest guy in the fellowship, right? The guy who had founded my home group, people weren't nice to me. I would walk into my own home group and people would walk up to me and go, and walk away from me, which was great because you couldn't be my higher power for one more minute it says in our literature god could and would if he were sought you see when i got to alcoholics anonymous you said make the doorknob your higher power make the tree your higher power make the group your higher power but the doorknob will break and they'll cut down the tree and eventually you will fail me and i have to get something bigger i lost that house i lost that marriage i totaled my pretty bmw texting because i was so important i couldn't miss that text And I ended up living in a granny annex in someone's backyard seeking God. And everything that came between me and God went away. Went away. And having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, it's all I get. See, I thought it was about stuff. If you're new, stuff will come and stuff will go. It's the roller coaster of stuff. But what I get here is a God of my own understanding that can solve my problems. And not just my drinking problem, my drug problem, my shoe shopping problem, my cake eating problem, my Amazon shopping problem, right? The shoes, the sugar, the boys, all of it. God can solve it all. But like Bill says in his story, he talks about a belief in a dependence on God. Because believing in God is not enough. I have to depend on this God. God. I ended up being a practicing Buddhist. I was raised Jewish here in LA. That makes me a boo right? I'm a Buddhist with a God. If you have a question about that, you're welcome to ask me about that, right? And, uh, and I have a God that solves my problem. And it's not, you know, Having a belief in this God is great. Yeah, you're over here. I believe in you, right? I, have, I always tell this story, and you may have heard this before. It's my favorite story, though. I'm standing in the middle of the street, and there's two 20-story buildings on each side of me, and I look up, and there's a tightrope that goes across the top of these 20-story buildings, and over on the top of the one building, I see a guy in a clown suit with a wheelbarrow. Wow, that's crazy. The guy's going to walk across the tightrope to the other side. And do I believe that he can do that? I believe it. But am I willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Mm, that's the dependence on, right? Cause I can believe all I want, but if I don't turn my will on my life over to the care of something besides me, I got this will eat me alive. So I met a man shocking. I know we're on husband number uh, four, if you're counting. And, uh, I was working for a company uh, in the Midlands, in the UK, uh, in a lovely little town called Kettering. And uh, and I met a guy and he had an English accent and he was so cute, um, so I married him. And uh, I thought, you know, I'll move to England, it'll be fine. We speak the same language, just for future reference, we do not speak the same language. I speak American, you speak English. Super clear on that. So. I think it's going to be fine. AA will be fine. Now, remember, I just told you I live in Los Angeles. I go to meetings with you know a few hundred people in a meeting, and I moved to a little town called Wellingborough uh, in Northamptonshire, and uh, and I go to my local meeting, and there's eight people in my local meeting, and it's the same eight people in every meeting, and we're all sharing about how horrible our day is, and there isn't even a book in the room, and I'm having a hard time. I'm struggling, and I've married this guy, and it. Turns out that he smokes weed every day and didn't know that three years in a long distance relationship because he forgot to mention it. And I'm like, God, why? And there were two women that went to meetings where I went to meetings and there was a woman who had 20 years and there was a woman who was new. And the woman with 20 years within six months was, was diagnosed with cancer and passed away. And so here I am, I want women in my life. I didn't, when I first got sober, I was like, women, are you kidding? Please. And now I'm craving it and I don't have it. I'm going to these meetings and I'm miserable. It's very different than what I'm used to. And I'm miserable, I'm calling my sponsor. She said, just keep showing up with your book and being the example of Alcoholics Anonymous that you know. And then eventually one woman showed up and eventually another woman showed up and eventually another woman showed up. And I ended up sponsoring 17 women there, taking them through the steps, through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I can tell you is that I wasn't brought there for that guy, right? But my God also knows me, you know, God himself, you know, like Charlton Heston God with like robes and staffs and stuff could come down and go, Lulu, I need you to go to like the middle of England with cows and sheep and things and do my work. I would have been like, Did? like I live in California in the San Fernando Valley and I'm just super busy. And I just don't think I can squeeze that into my schedule. So he sent me, you know, a cute English guy and boom, I'm off, right? And these women, they have become such an integral part of my life. You know, I recently got a a text from one of my um, grand sponsees over there. And she said, I just want to thank you for going through the book with my sponsor, because I'm sitting down to go through the book with another girl. And that's my purpose, my primary purpose, to stay sober and help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. That's it. And, you know, in 2000, I was there from 2014 to 2018. And I got to tell you, I love you guys, but man, it's cold and wet over there. I moved back to Los Angeles in 2018. And, uh, you know, I came back to LA and thought, um, this is going to be great back home. You know, you guys, a lot of you are in London and London is kind of a, you know, city vibe where I was living. It was like everything shut down like six o'clock and it was like, it was sleepy. And I moved back here I'm like when I'm my life bag It's gonna be amazing 2020 hit we all go on lockdown I got nothing better than anybody else in the whole world I'm stuck in my house <laughs> God has a sense of humor like nobody's business right um, but you know I moved back here and um, it was funny I went to move back here and there was I wanted to live in a certain area that was very cool and hip um, but I no longer could afford the cool and hip area. And I got put in an area called Northridge, Northridge, California. We're known for an earthquake in 1994. We had a huge earthquake. That's about what we got. Welcome to Northridge. And I got a granny annex in Northridge. And I was like, oh my goodness, Northridge, really? Is this what you got for me, God? God puts me, uh, exactly where I need to be. Right. And so I'm in Northridge and, and, uh, And 2020 comes around. And I'm sure you guys all had a weird 2020. Anybody not have a weird 2020? I think that's kind of right. But I always say, I I think I had a little side of challenging sauce to my 2020. Uh, January 19th of 2020, I had a stroke. I was happy and healthy and just doing my life one day. And, uh, (laughs) you know, everybody says it must have been really traumatic. I don't know. I don't remember it. Sure, it was. They say, Oh, did you smell burnt toast? I didn't, I don't know what I smell. I don't remember much of that day. I have little glimpses uh, of that day, the day before, and probably about the week or two before. Um, Luckily, some people acted very quickly in my life, uh, one of which is actually on this meeting. And uh, they got in contact with 911. And and, uh, amazingly enough, in Northridge, a mile from my house, we have a stroke center. Mm, funny, huh? And now four hours to get that shot that undoes the clot in your brain, right? And because everyone moved quickly, here I am. I'm pretty okay. I'm a little. I blame everything on the stroke. I'll tell you this. This is my new thing. I meet. I see you in a meeting, and I forget your name. I go. I'm so sorry, sweetie. I had a stroke last January. <laughs> it's my excuse for everything. So I have this stroke in January when they're checking me into the hospital. They tell me I have something called MRSA. I didn't know what MRSA was. I didn't really care. MRSA, because uh, I'm busy having a stroke, really. Uh, In February, uh, I lost my job and my career. Now I haven't worked since. And uh, in March, I got really sick with MRSA. I broke out in abscesses all over my body. And on March 13th, it was Friday the 13th, everybody else was going into lockdown. I ended up in the emergency room with people working on me for MRSA in hazmat suits. I was septic and I almost died. So I thought that'd be a really good time to get in a relationship with a guy who uh, was 25 years old, had been out of prison for five days and had four months sober. That's it, 19 19 years sober, kids. Thank you, thank you very much. Right, I'm in this weakened state. I can use any excuse I want, but that was, you know, that was what was going to fix me at the time. Seemed like a good idea at the time, right? And uh, we're all going into lockdown, and I went into lockdown with this guy. And um, so by April, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous had moved to Zoom. I'm feeling really detached. I'm not really attached. I'm in lockdown with this guy, and I just I'm not feeling it. By May, the MRSA uh, takes over the bones in my mouth and I have to have surgery to have all these bones removed from my mouth, it's pretty serious. And by June, that relationship ended in a hotel room in Las Vegas, Nevada in violence, 19 years sober. And I was driving back from Las Vegas at two o'clock in the morning, standing in a bathroom in a, in a petrol station. <laughs> on the border of Nevada and California, out of my mind at 19 years sober. And I saw myself in the mirror in this bathroom. And I said, is this unmanageable enough yet? Is it? This craziness. And I got home and, uh, and you know, I, uh, by July, I was told when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, please excuse the expression, but when your ass is falling off, put it in a bag take it to a meeting. And we didn't have that, we were all on Zoom. But I had taken this guy to a meeting in a park, the illegal meetings we were having here in the park. My ass was falling off, so I put it in a bag and I went out to the park. And lo and behold, I was in a park with some some people who uh, went to a local AA clubhouse that we had here that I had judged for years. I wouldn't go to meetings there, oh my God. Would never go to meetings there. Those people aren't like really sober. (laughs) I'm dying. I'm dying of alcoholism and I'm in a park with these people every single day 12 and 6, 12 and 6, 12 and 6, 12 and 6. I started sponsoring girls again. I started getting active. In August, I got COVID. Shocking, I know, right? (laughs) You know, and I was okay. And by September, my whole life had changed. My whole life didn't look anything like it looked. And I had to take some sponsor direction and I started going back to school. I'm now in school. I'm gonna graduate by the time I'm a senior citizen. I'm gonna have a cap, a gown and a walker. Ah, it's gonna be amazing. Thank you for the degree. And I took an intern job doing something I love and I don't know where it's gonna take me. Like, I just don't even know. But the reason I tell you all that is because that's all drama and I'm fine. Because I know that God has me right where he wants me. You know, I calculated out at the beginning of the pandemic that on the money that I was making, I could make it until September. We're now in April, I'm okay. I'm eating, paid for my car payment, roof over my head. God is taking care of it. Yeah, did I have to remove some of the stuff that I thought, I had had columns in my budget that were um, necessities and luxuries. And let me just say, a lot of the necessities have moved to luxury. Who knew that was possible? I just learned to live differently because I know that God's got me. I never believe that God has, oh, why have you forsaken me? Like, this is it, man, I'm good. I'm right where God wants me to be. So now I live in this little granny annex in Northridge with a one and a half kilo chihuahua because God is funny. I wanted a real dog. I did. I wanted a real dog. And I was in a McDonald's. This girl handed me a a dog. uh, Izzy can attest. She's this big. She's the smallest dog I've ever seen. She fits in the palm of your hand. Smallest dog I've ever seen. And she said, no, you'll give her a good life. And I'm like, no, no, no. I want a real dog. I went into the the pet place the next day with this tiny dog right fits in my hand and I said I need a harness for my dog and the guy goes you need a ferret harness for that and laughed at me and I'm like dude you're lucky I'm 20 years sober because really just give me the harness for the dog and, uh, and what I can tell you is, you know, in my tiny little house and I have a tiny little car and have a tiny little dog, I, I'm not tiny by any means, by the way, whatever Zoom may, <laughs> may imply, but that's what God wants in my life right now, right? That's where I'm supposed to be. I don't look at it as humiliating. It's humbling. Sure right? But that's where God wants me to be. I have a tiny chihuahua and a sweater. I have a good life. I have sponsors I have friends all over the world. My friend Izzy's here from New York. She's my sober sister. God put her in my life a couple years ago. I didn't plan on that. She's in New York. They talk funny, but they're all right. And, uh, and God's got it. So I had a resentment for like 16 years. I can hold a resentment really good. Right. I can tell you the day it started, that's how good it was. My dad died when I was 24 years old and uh, and my uncle took care of my dad's estate. And I didn't really I thought my uncle should step up and be dad like and he didn't do that. And in uh, in 1999, uh, I went on a trip to the East Coast to go to Woodstock in New York in 99 and I stopped by to see my family and I was hanging out with them and my uncle showed up for 10 minutes and then he left. And I asked my aunt where he went and she said, uh, you remind him too much of your dad and he had to leave. And I got really angry. You're the adult. Dad would have wanted you to step up. What's wrong with you? And I never spoke to anyone on that side of my family again. And what I can tell you, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and you said to write an inventory of people I had resentments against. And I thought, well, they don't have to be on that list because I don't resent them because I don't talk to them. And you know, a few years into sobriety, social media came along, and I call social media the amends maker. Don't ever tell your sponsor I can't make, I can't make amends to Sandra. Why? Because I don't know where Sandra is. Bing, you have a friend request from Sandra. So we're a few years in, and I started to get friend requests from that side of the family, and I decided to accept my cousin. She was cool. She was uh She was the other black sheep of the family. She likes to marry convicts as well, you know. And I led her into the inner sanctum of fabulousness that is my Facebook page. We started talking and she lived in New York and uh, I traveled for business. So every time I would go to New York, I would go see her, we'd have dinner. She knew I hated her parents. We never spoke about her parents. It was not up for discussion. And then one day I was telling her on the, messenger that I was coming to New York and my God is really loud and sometimes I'm really stubborn so God will speak through my mouth and type through my fingers and all of a sudden I found myself typing how are your parents she said you know they're okay they're in their 80s mom has dementia dad breaks bones a lot but they're doing okay and the next thing I typed was do you think they'd want to see me And she said, I know they'd love to see you. Every time I see you, they ask to see pictures of you. They want to see your social media. They want to know everything about you. And I knew it was time to make that amends. And so I'm taking the train to upstate New York and I'm mad, I'm getting mad. Or I remember all the horrible things they did to me and I'm furious and my uncle's in the hospital and we walk into this hospital room and I open the door and there's my uncle laying in the hospital bed in a cast and my aunt standing there. And there are these two frail, little old people, couldn't harm a fly. And my resentment went away, just went away. And I went in and I did what you taught me to do. I said, I was wrong for what I did to you. What can I do to make it right? And then I shut my mouth. And my uncle said, "Uh, you know, I'm still really mad at your dad. And I said, why? And he said, well, because he had a death wish. And I said, why would you say that? And he said, well, you know, when he had the liver cancer and he was taking the chemo, they told him he had to stop drinking and he wouldn't stop drinking. And I said, I don't think he had a death wish. I said, I think he thought he was special and different. I think he thought the rules didn't apply to him and I don't think he could stop drinking. And my uncle said, why do you think that? I said, cause I think I'm special and different and I think the rules don't apply to me and I can't stop drinking and I have alcoholism. And I spent the next hour explaining to those two people what alcoholism looks like. And in that hour, not only was I freed of my resentment, I got to free them of theirs. And you didn't tell me that was gonna happen. And by the end of that visit with my my aunt and my uncle, I had climbed in the bed with my uncle and we were taking selfies for my Facebook page and talking about getting matching tattoos, me and this 80 year old man. You know, and we were healed and we were laughing. And uh, and not long after that, you know, uh, my cousin messaged me and she said, my, my daughter's getting married. I would really like for you to come. I hadn't been to a family event in 20 years. And I said, I was living in England at the time. And I said, I don't know how I'm gonna afford it, but I'll find a way. And the fellowship in England uh, gave me a commitment where I had to be in Los Angeles two days after the wedding. And when I asked the treasurer, would it be okay if I stopped in New York? He said, I don't care what you do. And I went to this wedding. And after the wedding, you know, I went to my aunt, my uncle's house and we went back to their apartment and um, told stories and laughed and and had this amazing time. And my uncle would send me articles and do all this stuff. And we built this relationship that I didn't even know I wanted with these people. You know, and last year, um, in April, uh, one morning, my uh, my aunt woke up, and my uncle had passed away from this virus that everyone's so afraid of. And two days later, she died of the same thing. And at that time, we were all locked down; we couldn't have funerals. And they had a Zoom funeral, and I got to go. And you know, their children and their family told them how told me how much it meant that I had come back into their life. How much it meant to them that's a gift I didn't even know I wanted from you when I got here. You said, you know, don't leave before the miracles happen. I didn't know what the miracles were. Those are miracles that people want me around, right? That people wanna include me in these things. Like what? And I was super grateful that I got to have that. And that's only because I did what you told me to do. I'm gonna tell you one more story about amends because I'm really big on amends. So I have this brother, my brother's perfect. I don't know if you guys, any of you have a perfect sibling. I have a perfect sibling. Growing up, he was the good guy. My brother is a school teacher in Arizona. He's been married to his wife for over 20 years. I've been married four times, I can't get to 20 years my brother's not an alcoholic like my brother has a wine cellar in his house he keeps wine for like 10 years I don't get him at all he's super my brother is I call him super beige guy because he's like he's the guy he wears um you can't really see on zoom but I'm covered in tattoos my brother's the guy who's who wears like a a mint green polo shirt tucked into his khaki pants with a lovely belt and a brass belt buckle and crocs That's my brother. He doesn't get more conservative than my brother. My brother's never smoked weed. He's 50 years old. Like, who is this guy, right? And we don't get along. And all my mother's ever wanted for us is to have a relationship. But we don't get along. He's perfect. He's always been the good kid. Right? Who cares about that? We just don't get along. He's a judgmental jerk. So like I said, my dad died when I was 24 years old. My brother was in college. Uh... He couldn't deal with it, he didn't come back to help. He told me he wanted one thing of my dad's, it was a Movado watch. So I made sure when I went through my dad's stuff that I grabbed the Movado watch and I shoved it in my pocket and I never gave it to my brother. So at 10 years sober, when my life was on fire, I called my sponsor in tears. (laughs) People in AA are being horrible to me. I went to my home group and they were mean and they, they don't like me anymore. My sponsor said, why don't you give your brother the watch? <laughs> you're, you're not listening to me. People in here and nothing to know with the watch. So why don't you give your brother the watch? And she hung up the phone. Next day I called her. <clears throat> why don't you give your brother the watch? Now I don't know about you guys, but eventually I'll do something just to make my sponsor stop saying the same thing over and over again. I'll just take the direction to shut her up. So after a while, I was like, fine, I took this watch. I had it all fixed up, had a new band put on it and a battery put in a nice box. I called my mom, my brother was visiting from Arizona and I said, I'm gonna take Josh to the airport. And my mom says, you're not gonna kill him and hide the body, are you? No, don't worry. You know, we were driving down the, the freeway to the airport. And I said to my brother, I said, I was wrong for what I did to you. What can I do to make it right? And I handed my brother the watch. My brother opened this watch and he started to cry and he said do you know what it was like to be your brother and I said no why don't you tell me and he said you know I was just a good kid doing the best that I could do working hard and you were in the hospital again and you were in the back of a police car again and you were in the principal's office again and they didn't even know I was alive And I had never seen it from my brother's point of view. The attention was always on me, negative or not, right? And this poor kid was just doing, my brother's such a good guy. My brother works in an inner city school and he coaches volleyball and he raises money so that he can buy his girls jerseys because the school can't even afford the jerseys, right? He's a good dude on his off time when I'm in Arizona, like we're walking around in the market and they're, hey, Mr. O, what's happening, Mr. O? they love him. He's a good dude. And I could never see that. And I got a shift in perception that day. And I learned that it's not just about saying I was wrong, but it's about amending the behavior. Amends isn't I'm sorry. Nobody cares that I'm sorry anymore. It's about amending that behavior. So I started to make my brother the center of attention and everything was about him. I started pimping him on my Facebook page. We raised money for his girls. I started showing him a lot of love. We built a relationship. Who knew that was possible? Who knew? And in 2019, we had built this relationship. I had moved back to Los Angeles and he was excited to see me and I was excited to see him and I love my brother. And they announced the uh, American football schedule and his American football team, which is the uh, Oakland Raiders and my American football team, which is the Chicago Bears. it It was announced that they were gonna be playing at Tottenham Stadium in London. Now my brother's never been anywhere. He's a good guy. He makes his house payment, he has two kids. If he wants to go on a holiday, he has to take his whole family. He can't afford that, he's a teacher. And so I called up my brother and I said, I wanna take you on a trip to meet my friends and to go to this game. And so on September 28th of 2018, uh, 2019, my brother and I got in an airplane and we flew. into Heathrow and then we went up to, we started in Scotland. Uh, he had never been to anywhere. My brother had never been out of the country. I took him to Edinburgh first and then we drove down, saw my friends, stopped in Liverpool, went to the Midlands where he's like, why did you live here? I'm like, don't ask. Then we went to London, had an amazing time. We went to an Arsenal game cause he's a big Arsenal fan. And then we went to the football game at Tottenham Stadium and it was amazing his Raiders won. I told him it was part of the amends process. Him and his Raiders. We had a ball. And the best part was I was on this road trip with my brother and we were laughing and staying in Airbnbs and, and all of that stuff. And we had a great time. And, you know, my mom had said all along that we were exactly alike and I didn't believe her. And she was right. We were exactly alike. And again, when I can tell you is that's a miracle I didn't even want when I got here. You know, when I got to you, you guys offered me all this stuff I didn't want. Like if you would have told me when I got here, hey, here's where your miracles are gonna be. You're gonna reconnect with this family that you hate and, uh, and all this stuff. And it's, and oh, you offered peace. You want it? you said you want peace. You know, I was talk about the hippie women and I got, you know, I got sober in Los Angeles. These hippies would be like, if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it. And they were, you know, essential oil sniffing, crystal wearing hippies in their long flowy blouses. And I was like, no, I'm cool. Uh, I listen to metal. Uh, I drive, a, you know, I ride a motorcycle. Uh, I'm cool. I have a leather jacket. Like I was 10 years sober and I had somebody say to me, you know, maybe if you stopped listening to angry white boy music, you'd stop being such an angry white boy. I didn't even know that was possible, right? I started listening to Britney Spears, and by the way, you can't be angry when you listen to Britney, but that's just a whole outside issue. And so what I can tell you is, right, they offered me this piece, and what I can tell you is today, I'm an essential oil sniffing, Mala crystal wearing hippie. You made me that, but I'm an essential oil sniffing, you know, crystal wearing hippie with peace. And see this peace thing that you offered me that I didn't want, that I get, I get to lay my head down at night and I'm okay, I'm fine. This God of my own understanding that solves my problem through prayer and meditation and conscious contact with that power gives me this peace that I'm okay. I didn't even know I wanted that when I got here. But now that I have it, dude, I wouldn't sell it to you for a million dollars, right? But if you ask me, I'll give it to you for free. So thank you. Lulu, wow. Grace of God. I love that. Um, you know, everything I have in my life or well, everything good in my life is down to that premise, that belief, that faith, that hope, um, that acceptance. And the easiest way for me to connect with my God is just to remove the word coincidence from my vocabulary. Because that's when the dots start to connect. Um, you talked about the why. I don't really think about the why a hell of a lot. And the reason is I can dissect it in so many different ways, but it's not going to affect the fact that I'm an alcoholic and I'm always going to be an alcoholic. And you talked about drunk dialing. Oh my god waking up uh, the next day, checking the outgoing calls, the